Jamaican reggae artist Bob Marley produced exceptional music. His album Exodus was voted as Time's Album of the Century. He was the recipient of a well-deserved Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, despite his lifespan only lasting for 36 years. But he transcended his profession with his lyrics and actions, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was fully committed to empowering, transforming, and uplifting the lives of everyone that encountered him. His ability to hit us with music momentarily took away the pain of his fans. He managed this despite some of life's greatest barriers. He was born to a life of poverty on an island that at the time was categorized as an undeveloped nation. His charitable nature left him blind to the dozens of predators that would manipulate him for their own nefarious gain. Assassins came for him, perhaps sent by the CIA itself. But that just resulted in Marley showing off his wounds two days later to the 80,000 assembled to jam with him. He had to forego playing the guitar for that event, as the bullet remained lodged within his arm. His birth in Jamaica meant that he carried the baggage of a world that had once claimed the title of the longest colonized. His improbable rise from a practitioner of a little-known genre to global superstar served as inspiration to the tired, poor, and huddled masses throughout the developing world. This isn't just a rhetorical claim, as his lyrics were used to rejuvenate freedom fighters in Zimbabwe at the tail end of their 15-year-long fight for freedom. It is thus no surprise then that Paul Gilroy, a professor at the London School of Economics, elevates Marley from musician to civil rights leader by proclaiming the Jamaican as an icon for the struggle of justice, peace, and human rights. What made him so special? How did he manage to transcend the obstacles thrown at him? What were his faults and did he do enough to earn his redemption? We'll examine these questions and more over the course of the next four episodes. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series is about Jamaica's most famous global export, Bob Marley. Episode number one, a Blunt, The Bible, and Music, The Formation of the Whalers. Before Bob Marley and the Whalers, there were just the Whalers. And before Bunny Livingstone and Peter Tosh joined him, there was just an unwanted baby named Nesta. His mother would later shift Nesta to serve as his middle name after too many individuals pointed out to her that it was far too feminine for the young child. Robert thus became his first name. He was born on February 6, 1945 in a tiny rural village known by the name of Nine Mile. To say that it was impoverished is a statement that is hard to quantify for someone in the 21st century. No one in the community of Nine Mile had working electricity, nor running water. 
The boy was the product of a fling between his mother, an 18-year-old black woman named Sedalia Malcolm, and the 64-year-old Norval Marley, a white Brit working in Jamaica. The two quickly wed, but Norval soon abandoned his wife and son. Although he remained on the island, he didn't provide any financial support or care for his family. That story of abandonment is far too common on the island of Jamaica, which was colonized by the British in 1655. Before that, the Taino and Arawak peoples lived relatively peaceful lives, but were exterminated in the wake of the arrival of Christopher Columbus in 1494. Little remains of the indigenous peoples of Jamaica, except for the island's name, which originates from the Arawak language and means land of wood and water. Other Arawak words such as hammock, hurricane, barbecue, and canoe are pretty much all that remain of the land's original residents. Columbus's benefactors, the Spanish, began to settle the island in 1510, but its lack of gold meant that the Spanish presence remained sparse. Absent mining operations, plantations were established in order to resupply ships making the transatlantic journey. Spain's European peers soon followed across the Atlantic and England forcibly took the island so that it could be used as the proverbial dagger pointed at the heart of the Spanish Empire in the Americas. Soon after, British landowners came over to resettle the island, but the earliest English residents of note were privateers who had come seeking fortune via the plunder of Spanish treasure ships that were laden down with stolen Aztec gold. Men like Sir Henry Morgan, whose namesake Captain Morgan Rum was also birthed into this world the same year as Bob Marley was. Morgan, however, was born to a well-off family that farmed. He sold himself as an indentured servant so that he could find his fortune in Barbados. He likely was picked up against his will by an English armada at the orders of Oliver Cromwell in the dictator's attempt to wrest Hispaniola from the Spanish. After their efforts in Haiti were repelled, the fleet next turned to the sparsely defended Jamaica. Historian Wayne Curtis tells us that although the attack lacked heroism, it marked two historical milestones. It was the first state-financed naval operation by the British in the West Indies, and Henry Morgan had his formal coming-out party. Laura Goldenberg is the U.S. rum category manager for Captain Morgan's parent company of Seagram's. She explains her product by declaring that Captain Morgan is a lot more than flavor. It reflects an attitude. It's fun and adventurous. It has a real personality and an appealing proposition. Good taste, good times, good fun. She apparently hasn't done much historical research on the man that is proudly presented on the front of their bottles as the fun-loving Morgan was known, in particular, for his ultra-violent tactics during raids. Curtis reveals that the pirate was known to utilize the rack, have flaming sticks tied between prisoners' fingers, as well as twisting a cord around their heads so tightly that the victim's eyeballs popped 
like grapes from skins. None of those actions fall beneath my definition of good fun. Between his eye-popping raids, Morgan would find safe harbor in Port Royal, Jamaica, a sanctuary for pirates situated across from the harbor of Kingston. Curtis reveals that Port Royal made an especially appealing base for pirates, since island governors were happy to turn a blind eye to their activities. The pirates were a useful nuisance. They brought in gold and silver to buoy the local economy and served as an ad hoc naval defense force at no cost to the governor. But even if they had wanted to do so, the pirate sanctuary was ungovernable. Legitimate colonists referred to it as the most wicked and sinful city in the world, as well as the Sodom of the New World. Edward Ward went so far as to describe it as the dunghill of the universe, the refuse of the whole creation, the clippings of the elements, a shapeless pile of rubbish confusingly jumbled into an emblem of chaos, neglected by omnipotence when he'd formed the world into its admirable order. He wasn't done yet, proclaiming that it was the receptacle of vagabonds, the sanctuary of bankrupts, and a closed stool for the purges of our prisons. As sickly as a hospital, as dangerous as the plague, as hot as hell, and as wicked as the devil. Upon being knighted for his service to the crown, Morgan would go on to acquire 1,200 acres on the island and serve as Jamaica's lieutenant governor. Although Port Royal was completely destroyed in a devastating earthquake and its subsequent tsunami, Ward's descriptions could also apply to the conditions that Bob Marley grew up in as a child. Even if his aging deadbeat father had wanted to provide financial support, it wouldn't have helped much, as he passed away when his son was just nine years old. At the time of his death, Norval Marley was barely scraping by off of his eight-shilling-a-week army pension from his service in a labor corps during the First World War. It wasn't glorious service, as he had failed out of basic training after reporting that he regularly wet the bed under the stress of the times. Needing every man that they could draft, he would go on to serve the Empire by doing the soldiers' laundry. After all, someone had to clean up the sheets that he had soaked. Bob Marley would rarely talk about his father, and never in glowing terms. Actress Esther Anderson, one of the singer's numerous mistresses in the 70s, stated that the guy didn't exist. There was a photograph of him on a horse. A white man on a horse. That was it. The closest thing that Marley had to a father figure was his maternal grandfather, who was something of a mystic, practicing benevolent healing arts. His mystical power seemed to have been bedding women, as the man was believed to have fathered as many as 30 children. 
Marley's mother recalls that her father taught Bob not to steal, to tell the truth, to obey. He owned a number of small land plots and had his grandson do manual work for him. It appears as though the young child could have been happy with this life. Historian Roger Steffens, whose incredible work, So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley, is the lead source for this series, points out that Bob loved riding around on his favorite donkey, which bore the name Nimble. Marley is described by those that knew him as a fearless rider, even jumping bareback over a five-foot wall with ease, sometimes even doing it backward. Just as a quiet life of farming wasn't how Henry Morgan wanted to spend his life, Bob Marley had a higher calling. At night on the farm, he and his cousins would plug their grandfather's radio into a generator, picking up a Miami radio station. Stefan reveals that Elvis Presley, Fats Domino, and Ricky Nelson were early favorites of the boys. He received his first guitar during this time, a small banjo that they stringed themselves. When he was five, his dad unexpectedly reappeared and asked the boy's mom if he could take him to Kingston so that Marley would be able to obtain an education and a chance for a better life. But it was a trafficking ruse. Upon his arrival in Kingston, Bob was immediately abandoned to the care of an elderly friend of his dad. He spent the next few years of his life as an abandoned child on the streets of the capital. Fate intervened when someone from Nine Mile recognized Bob on the street and informed his mother of the truth. It was upon his reunion with his mom that the young boy first proclaimed that his dream was to become a singer. Soon after his return to Nine Mile, his mother began to shack up with Bunny Livingston's father. Bunny, who was nine at the time, would be one of the three co-founders of the Whalers. He described Bob, who was about two years older than him, as a wild child. The son of another, Bunny's father didn't welcome Bob into the family as an equal with his own son. Bunny described his friend's upbringing as the ugly duckling of the makeshift family, stating that he had to find his own little brush to pick and his own little cornmeal. Nobody wanted him around their corn so he would get what's left. He just had to survive. His most serious endeavor was just to eat and drink. There were many nights of cold ground for his bed and stone for his pillow. Bob was not a child who would get anything that he sought. He didn't get what any other child got. The mixed family and child abandonment is a direct legacy of Jamaica's colonial history. Dr. Michelle Lemonis, writing for the Canadian Journal of Peace and Conflict Studies, explains that heteropatriarchy is a colonial inheritance and structuring principle. Gendering and heterosexuality, the dominant male and the submissive female are imposed at all levels within a society. 
continually intersecting and reinforced until it becomes a cultural norm. Bob's mother had found a new partner, but she would have never entered into this relationship as an equal. Thus, she followed suit when her boyfriend neglected her son. But Marley somehow had it even worse due to the fact that he was biracial. Steffens explains that Bob's earliest years were filled with neglect and rejection by both races. Whites thought of him as a black child. Blacks critical of mixed-race children taunted him as the little yellow boy. Even his revered great-grandmother, known as Yaya, referred to him as the German boy. For Bob, his color seemed to be an impediment wherever he turned causing him to turn inward, a solitary soul relying on his own inner strengths. Black Jamaicans were trafficked via the slave trade to Jamaica to serve as slaves in the colony's burgeoning sugarcane fields. Although the Spanish had previously brought in some West Africans, the practice exploded beneath the rule of the English. Lemonis points out that Jamaica was considered the jewel of the Caribbean, and human slavery was the key to its wealth. She also notes that the aggression and brutality of slavery in the Caribbean embodied every form of physical and psychological violence available to the settlers to brutalize and dehumanize the people beneath them. Thus, the colonial system was devoid of morality, and it created a legacy of intergenerational trauma and a social environment of inequality, inequity, and self-destruction for the oppressed and the oppressors. White men regularly sexually assaulted their female slaves in a blatant attempt to impregnate them in order to produce the next wave of slaves. Although sexual assault was common in most slave-master situations, this attempt to forcibly breed their slaves was relatively unique to Jamaica. Historian Kathleen Wilson explains that the white man's sexual procreation with slaves were blamed on the lack of resident white women, naming them as the primary cause of the white man's immorality and violence. Soon, there were so many biracial children that the government of Jamaica passed laws limiting how much land mixed mulatta children could inherit, as well as creating a demarcation line for who could access what the English falsely referred to as the inalienable rights and privileges of man. From that point on, there were ongoing efforts to entrench white power in what was quickly becoming a black-majority nation. Dr. Lemonis writes that whiteness became the ideal, signifying freedom, belonging, and privilege. Slave rebellions failed, but the black citizens of Jamaica were able to rejoice when the evil practice officially ended in 1834, creating a new world for the once black slave. Although it had been reached peacefully, 
the privileged elite of the island weren't feeling any urgency to share their power with the colony's newest citizens. Lemonis teaches us that this new world was filled with Jamaican people who were rebellious and aggressive against what they felt was exploitation. Frederick Hickling further adds that the violence was later turned inward, and for some resulted in an onslaught of their self-destruction. Before the emancipation from slavery could occur, the British Empire unleashed its art and strategy of colonial state-making in Jamaica, which included complete sovereignty of land, people, and commodities, creating divisive systems using divide-and-rule policies, land, ethnocentrism, religious suppression, education and language, native inferiority, depoliticization, loss of livelihood and sustenance, and trauma and inward violence. A child of biracial parents, Bob Marley wasn't white enough to have privilege, but wasn't black enough to not earn the scorn of a group of people who had been raised to hate their oppressors. In 1957, he moved back to Kingston, this time with his makeshift family. They settled in a slum known as Trenchtown, living in government housing that had been erected to give the poor access to running water. The area derived its name from the large sewer trench that ran through the center of the residential area. The government-run ghetto was bureaucratically designed, with six double-decker homes on every street, which were conveniently sequentially numbered. Marley lived on 3rd Street, which happened to be the same boulevard that Joe Higgs, a music teacher, called home. Still to this day, urban centers are home to some of the most beautiful cultural enclaves on the planet. Wandering through a metropolis, you often step into a well-defined neighborhood and feel as though you entered into another city altogether. One of the unique aspects of Trenchtown was that on every street you had little groups of boys and girls singing. Still, it was, as Steffens reminds us, a ghetto, and it was difficult for people from there to find jobs once potential employers discovered their address. Among the only ways that law-abiding people were able to escape were through sports or music. Joe Higgs became Bob's unofficial music teacher and mentor. He recalls for us that Bob was not treated as one of the family. He was an outcast in his house. Bob was sent to learn welding while Bunny was sent to school. His mother wouldn't allow anybody to know he was her son. He slept beneath the bottom of the house. When they started their informal lessons, he thought that Bob had hardly any voice there. What separated him from the rest of Higgs' students was his absolute love for the craft of music. And it wasn't because he viewed it as his only ticket out of Trenchtown. The boy literally just loved music more than anything else. It was an obsession that would never go away. 
Roger Steffen's book is composed of interviews woven together by those that intimately knew Bob Marley. Whenever I quote one of the musician's associates, I will attempt to alter the words slightly to avoid accusations of appropriating the local dialect or informal patois of those that grew up in Jamaica. Bunny Livingstone is by far the most interesting and hardest to understand voice in Stefan's work. The number one reason for this is that his patois is the most pronounced. But part of the difficulty comes from the fact that he seems to remember the details regarding the whaler's rise differently than all of the other characters in the story. He tells us that he came up with the whaler's name as well as the word reggae, which combined the patois word for a woman of the street with the Latin terms for king. The musical genre of reggae did originate out of Jamaica during the time that the boys were forming their identities within Trenchtown. But while they can lay claim to being the most famous reggae act, they certainly weren't the first. A 1968 single by Toots and the Matals was the first popular song to utilize the term reggae. The genre harkens back to Jamaica's West African roots but influenced by black American jazz and rhythm and blues. Combine that with the earlier genres of ska and rock steady, and you have a calming tune that was used to relate news, social gossip, and political commentary throughout Jamaica. The heavy use of drums, call and response with the audience, and offbeat rhythms all harken back to African cultural traditions that would have been preserved and passed down from their slave ancestors. The social gossip aspect of the music meant that kids would stand around the corners of Trenchtown, jamming out on their instruments while ad-libbing the vocals based on what was happening around them. Marley's writing style would remain the same throughout his life, composing songs in a non-sequential manner meaning that he would develop a line or a verse for a tune and then move on to the next one. Weeks, months, and sometimes years later, he would figure out another verse to what he had already written and only laid it on vinyl once it was complete. Bunny adds some context to the name for the makeshift group, which had yet to add its third key member of Peter Tosh. The singer recalls that we always had in mind to call ourselves like maybe the teenagers or roosters. One specific day I can remember Joe Higgs cooking a nice pot of cow cod soup when we were rehearsing in his kitchen there and the spirit was high. Everyone called out possible names and it's like a man was there next door or in the bathroom or something and we just heard a voice that says, The Whalers! The name stuck. It was appropriate as the residents of Trenchtown wailed against what they knew from experience was the excruciating pain of perpetual poverty. Stefan adds that to wail in Jamaican terms means to cry out for justice, to beseech the Almighty and the powers that be for a better life. It was not just crying. It was imploring from the depth of your soul, stripped of all pretense and inhibition. When Bob was 12 years old, he met Alan Skill Cole, a soccer star in Jamaica who became one of his closest friends. 
Alan remembers the budding superstar as an incredibly shy and timid child. He also recognized how warm and creative he was. Those were traits that Bob would continue to display throughout his short life. Encouraged by Cole, Marley ignored his teacher's advice and went to Leslie Kong's studio to audition as a solo artist. He had become even more determined to succeed in music after a welding accident had almost cost him one of his eyes. The result of the session saw the young man pocket $20 and cut his first record with the song Judge Not as the lead and Do You Still Love Me on the B-side. It's always a bit difficult to listen to Marley's early recordings as the island's recording studios were not technologically advanced. Marley also re-recorded his own songs in order to re-release them on different albums, which typically only consisted of two songs in the 1960s. Listening to both tracks, however, you can hear that the 16-year-old's vocals were not yet mature. Still, the reggae feel of the island is far more prominent than on his more known later work. Both songs are Marley originals, and Judge Not includes the biblical phrase of Judge Not, least ye be judged. We don't have a great feeling for his faith during this time, but he will repeatedly prove himself to be deeply convicted once he converts to the Christian sect of Rastafarianism. Bob didn't pay lip service to his faith. Much later in his life, his personal assistant, Desi Smith, described a typical day for Marley while they were living in Miami in the following way. Bob would get up around 10, 11. He used to go to bed real late. Then he'd wake up, get some mint tea, he might burn a blunt, he might reason, and within that time now, he read up the Bible, read a psalm out loud and discussed it with us, like a teacher discussing the meaning of the psalm, how it's relevant to everyday life, what it's saying. And after that, he takes the guitar and might come up, depending on the vibes, we might or might not get a song, a blunt, a Bible, and music. That's the best. That's how the day run. Might just play some soccer after that, the guitar, eat, back to the guitar. Judge Not was judged to not be a breakthrough hit, but its inability to catch on didn't dissuade the budding artist from his life's goal. His follow-up recording of One Cup of Coffee is one of my personal favorites. It's a cover of a country and western song by Claude Gray, but you would never know that from listening to Marley's rendition. He used his small profits to open a tiny record shop. His friends recollect that not even one record sold in those days. But Bob Marley was chasing what he loved. A key piece to the puzzle arrived in Trenchtown when Peter Tosh relocated from the remote western end of the island to Kingston when he was 15. The other members of the Whalers were immediately impressed, but that was mostly due to the fact that he had his own guitar, something that none of the other boys could afford. He also brought with him a hardened, militant attitude that would heavily influence Marley's middle years. 
Peter has never lost his hatred of the man, as his interviews with Stefan include purposeful alterations to words in order to make his point clearer. This included referring to government systems as shitstems. Tosh claims to have been born in music. From ever since I could talk and exchange verbal thoughts, I could sing. The first instrument I ever played was a guitar. I made it out of a piece of board, sardine can, and some plastic line, the plastic you use for fishing. When I left for Kingston, all I took was my little grip and some food to eat on the way and myself and jaw in my heart. His attitude immediately spread throughout the group with Bunny recalling that Peter was a revolutionary, a man arrogant and outspoken. He wasn't an actor. Everything that he stood for from the early stage he was really serious about. He was very conscious of Africa from an early stage. The three young men, of which Bob was considered to be the worst singer, formed the nucleus of what became known in 1964 as the Whalers, a group that would bring international attention to the budding art form that was reggae music. Joe Higgs helped to form the trio into a band, along with their female background vocalists. They soon found themselves in the recording studio of Coxton Dodd, a shady Jamaican who would become a longtime collaborator with Marley. One of the things that Dodd brought to the table was his studio band, the Scottalites. Professor Heather Augustine, one of the most renowned scholars on the subject, points out that they were the group that had literally invented the ska genre with their debut album in 1963. In 1964, they were backing up Marley, Bunny, and Peter Tosh. The Whalers' first release was Simmer Down, and to this day it is one of the songs that remains the most associated with Bob Marley. It was written by Marley as a message to the so-called rude boys of the ghettos of Jamaica at the time, urging them to calm down. The influence of the Scottalites, who would have been heavily involved in putting together the rhythm for the lyrics, is pronounced, particularly in comparison to Marley's later slower reggae style. By February of 1964, the song was number one in Jamaica, the breakthrough that Marley and the Whalers had been steadily working towards. They still had quite a bit to learn about the industry, however as the group received virtually no money for their work, despite the fact that more than 80,000 copies of Simmer Down had been sold and distributed. Coxton Dodd had pocketed most of the profits, getting away with it despite simultaneously admitting to the boys that anything in Jamaica that sold 5,000 qualified as a hit. Junior Braithwaite's voice is also on the recording of the group's breakthrough song, but regularly gets ignored in the Whalers' original lineup, despite the fact that Higgs went on the record believing that it was Junior who had the best voice in the group. Braithwaite explains some of the group's failure at capitalizing upon their first hit, as the Whalers was like just a singing group, a harmonizing group. We had nothing to do with instruments. 
So the commercial Wailers that you had touring later with Bob was like a group of musicians that he needed to back him up. The group wasn't overly concerned at the lack of income streaming in, as they all claimed to be content to just vibe in harmony with the music. The girls on Simmerdown, however, were quite vocal at their displeasure at not receiving a single penny for their substantial contributions. But the patriarchal roots of Jamaican colonialism ran deep, and their complaints fell upon deaf ears. Despite the lack of financial windfall, the Whalers continued to record at the behest of Dodd, who urged them to cover a wide variety of international music, including Bob Dylan's Rolling Stone. That album's cover, under the header of Dodd's Greatest Hits at One Studio, shows the three main Whalers dressed up as the Beatles at the height of their first American tour. The boys are clean-cut and dressed in crisp black suits, white-collared shirts, and clean black ties. As none of them had converted to the Rastafarian faith yet, they have clean-shaven buzz cuts that make it easy to see their wide grins. It was a look that was designed to attract the white international audience that was necessary if the group hoped to experience a financial windfall. They followed up on their success with a 1965 recording of One Love. The song is one of Marley's most well-known and beloved songs. But this original Wailers version is an irresistible gospel-infused ska track. It was here that Marley would first inform the world of his personal mantra of let's get together and feel all right. Such a feeling permeated the air around them in the concrete jungle of Trenchtown, despite the fact that the boys weren't yet conscious of the effect that their music could have on society. Junior Braithwaite explains how naive the Whalers were by stating, Who would expect that Bob would become the great king of reggae and all this? To us, it was just fun. At the time, to the people in society, it was like a shame if you didn't have a trade. If you were a singer, you couldn't make any money, and the people would discourage us, telling us to go learn a trade. Plus, I wanted to be a doctor or something, too. I think singing was just something that everybody needed to do, had to do. And it so happened that we were in a situation, we got a chance to record. Because around us, everybody sang. In churches, everybody sang. It's just a part of the culture. It wasn't like something special that no one else couldn't have done. When you're living in a deeply rooted cultural environment, then everything flows so easily. We were stronger then because we didn't have any problem. We hadn't journeyed out and had to counteract and encounter racism or anything. I didn't know anything about the color barrier until I journeyed out of Jamaica. The reality of life beyond Trenchtown was about to hit the whalers in the face. Join us for our next episode where we explore the violence that was ever present in Kingston. Violence that will result in a squad of assassins being sent to murder Bob Marley.
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.